0: This is Sports Jam. I'm Doug Doyle. My guest today is truly one of the most inspirational and giving people in the world. A former professional soccer player, social entrepreneur, humanitarian, cancer survivor, media personality, and the winner of CBS's Survivor Africa in 2002. Also an assistant soccer coach at Fairleigh Dickinson University when he was on Survivor. Ethan Zahn, great to see you, and thanks for being here on Sports, Dan. It's wonderful to be here. So thank you so much for having me, Ethan. Your passion for advocacy, social enterprise, global health, and self empowerment really took shape back in 2002 when you used your significant portion of your winnings from Survivor Africa to co-found Grassroot Soccer, a first of its kind non-governmental organization that uses the sport of soccer to teach at-risk youth self-reliance and critical life skills, such as HIV-AIDS awareness and prevention. It was a realization of an idea that first came to light when you were playing professional soccer in Zimbabwe. You came face-to-face with the toll and scale of the AIDS epidemic in Southern Africa. Can you take us back to being there in Zimbabwe and when you first noticed there was a real health crisis in that country? Sure. Well,
1: my strongest memories of when I was playing in Zimbabwe, well, some of the strongest memories of was all the graveyards there. Because um, my team, the Highlanders Football Club, we'd all smush into these tiny white little vans and travel these long, long dusty roads to get to our away games. And I just have these visions of these graveyards because some of the headstones were perfectly organized one right after another, like we see here in the United States. But then other areas, there were these wooden crosses piled high, overflowing on the streets. So I asked one of my teammates, I'm like, why are some people buried like this? Other people buried like that. And he says, well, that's where they bury all the people that die of AIDS. So for me to see a physical representation of everyone that was dying of this disease was shocking to me. People are dying. Everyone knows why. And no one's doing anything about it, including me <laughs> at that time in my life. And so, you know, to be honest, uh, I didn't really know what I could do about it. What could one person do to help this massive problem in all of Africa? So I didn't do anything. I shelved it. I said, it's not my problem. It's in a land far away. Someone else will deal with it. And so I continued playing um, soccer in in Africa. I ended up returning home to the United States. And um, about a year later, I got a letter from a friend telling me that one of my close friends, the starting goalkeeper, uh, had passed away of AIDS. This is my buddy. This is the guy I trained with day in and day out for years. And, uh, you know, this really was the first time I saw how one disease was destroying this community. And I saw the pain and suffering and compassion for all these people touched by this single disease. Um, And so that was kind of framed what was happening in the world um, for that global pandemic back in 1999, 2000.
0: It is the case with many causes. It starts with something personal. So for you, that did take shape. Enter Grassroots Soccer. The inception of the international organization has scaled up to 52 countries worldwide, impacted and graduated more than two and a half million lives and worked with scores of public and private sector partners. Grassroots soccer. I'm sure when you started it, like you said, what can one person do? Yeah. But now you're living proof. One person can make a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Talk about grassroots soccer for us. Sure. I mean, one person can make a
1: huge difference. However, grassroots soccer was a collaboration between four people. Um, So we had all played on that same team, Highlanders, at different points in our lives, but saw what was happening, you know, with HIV and AIDS and adolescent health. Um, So our basic model is uh, we train professional soccer players, coaches, peer leaders in the community with a curriculum that we developed on adolescent health. And then we send those players or those coaches into the classrooms or the soccer fields or the churches or the temples to deliver these health interventions and i don't have to tell you or anyone in new jersey really but uh soccer is the world's most popular sport every little kid wants to grow up to be a professional player so you can imagine the impact when we when we use these mentors these heroes these role models i mean we're able to break down cultural stereotypes bring people together and help educate these young people on adopting healthy behaviors and uh, at the time, you know, no one was really doing it. Everyone was using soccer or sports to develop players or to increase their skills or to get into college or professional. We were using soccer as the hook. And then we would use soccer and like the, the people involved in the sport and the themes and the, and that go along with sport to create game-based activities to deliver these important life-saving
0: um, information and, and, and challenges that these kids are going through. It's really amazing. And, It's so important when you talk about the worldwide popularity of soccer, because you think about it, it's the one sport around the globe that even the poorest of countries can compete and enjoy. All you need is a ball and a little bit of space, not necessarily even a field, right? A little bit of space and grassroots soccer now is changing lives. Can you tell us maybe a story or two about someone that you have met along the way that, you know, that you always think about, especially as we just give thanks on Thanksgiving and here on the weekend. And we're thinking about people that we're thankful for. Many people are thankful for Ethan Zahn and grassroots soccer. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate that. Well, you know,
1: we're gearing up for a a big uh, gala event in New York City on November 30th. Uh, That's the World AIDS Day gala because World AIDS Day is on on December 1st. So every year we have a, a fun, fancy gala to help raise awareness and money. But one of the people that is attending this year's gala is this incredibly inspirational woman named Tonga. Tonga was a a grassroots soccer student in uh, Zambia, and she's a great student, excelled well. We turned her into a coach, and so there she was able to use her skills and deliver these interventions to the kids. And then, unfortunately, she, you know, became HIV positive. And not only HIV positive, but she ended to go on and have some children herself. And now she's running the whole show for us in Zambia. So for us as an organization to have the ability to, you know, impact one of our students and her be so inspired to continue working with grassroots soccer all the way from being a student to now master coach and running the show in Zambia for me is, uh, and the whole organization is incredibly inspiring. And we have lots of stories like this. Like I said, we've been going on since 2003. And, uh, you know, your stats were, were semi-correct. We're actually uh, in 60 countries now and put about 13 million kids through the program. So uh, we're making a real impact in the, in the fight against HIV
0: and AIDS and helping adolescents around the world. Where did this giving inside come from you? I mean, we're going to talk about your public battle with cancer and how that also changed your life. But. There had to be something deep inside Ethan Zohn before all this took place, because winners of Survivor, sometimes we think about, well, are they in it for the glory? They're not necessarily in it for the public good, are they? But you're different. Well, I think uh, the word Survivor is an interesting word to, to, to dig
1: into, but my first experience of being a true Survivor was when I was 14 years old and cancer came into my home and it took my father away from me. And so at an early age, you know, I learned the, the, I feel I learned a little bit more about you know, what was important to me um, and what was important for me to be, how to, to place myself in the world, I guess you could say at a, at a young age. And like at that time in my life, I really didn't want to, like, I just wanted to curl up into a ball, sit in my room and not come out and talk or do anything or play with anyone or anything like that. But it was my, my mom, my two brothers, but my soccer team and the community around me that reached out and embraced me. They're the ones that reinforced my values in the time when I felt completely alone. And so at that point, I just, I, I know the value of, you know, community, the value of having other people support you in horrible times of your life. And I kind of live by the saying these days, like never let a crisis go to waste because it's an opportunity to do some really important things. So even in the middle of my, you know, my father, you know, you know, getting sick and passing away, the community helped me, and then I was over in Africa, seeing what was happening with HIV and AIDS, and how it was destroying that community. So how could I, you know, do that? Actually, on Survivor, which interesting is, um, I won a reward challenge on this TV show, Survivor. And Survivor was filmed in Kenya, Africa.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And this is way back in 2001. I just want to put put things into perspective for everyone. It was just the start of reality TV. No one knew what the heck this thing was, you know. But Survivor was popular. We, you know, we're getting 27, 30 million people watching the show. And so I had this experience on the show where I won a reward challenge where I got to go to this little village of Wamba in the middle of Kenya and I was hanging out in the parking lot of Wamba Hospital and all these Kenyan children just started coming out of the hospital. They're playing, touching my white skin, touching my hair. They'd never seen them really people before. And I started playing soccer with them. And we were just laughing and smiling and mm-hmm. sharing this moment and connecting with each other to the sport that we both love and the language that we understood to soccer, right? And so before I left, uh, The parking lot, I asked one of the nurses, I'm like, hey, why are these kids just chilling out in the parking lot of a hospital? And she said right there, these are the kids that are HIV positive. So here I am in the middle of this game, this like, let's be honest, a silly little game of Survivor and I had that real life experience. And it was at that moment, combined with what I went through in Africa, playing soccer, was when I decided that something should be done. And then I got back from, from, from the show Survivor. I got a call from my buddy, Dr. Tommy Clark, who had this brilliant idea for grassroots soccer. And then that's when it all clicked. And that's when we started pushing forward and just figuring out how can we use soccer to make sure kids don't die? Basically, is what it's all about. Simple do it. Simple, simple, at the time. No one was doing it, but we, we wanted to try it. Bold
0: enough to try new things, but humble enough to know that we're going to need a lot of help along the way. Wow. We're speaking with Ethan Zahn here on Sports Jam. A professional soccer player for Hawaii Tsunami, the Cape Cod Crusaders of the United Soccer Leagues, and then talked about Zimbabwe for the Highlanders FC. But you told me before we started this that you were the assistant coach at Fairleigh Dickinson University during your Survivor Days. How the heck did you work that out, and did that help you in any way gain the trust of the crew and the cast of Survivor? Well, uh, I don't think, I don't think being a coach at Fairleigh Dickinson helped me
1: gain any trust with anyone. No, just <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell the coach Seth Rowland, who, who's my buddy, and still coaching there. Um, but uh, yeah, it was just, you know, I was, had been coaching at Fairleigh Dickinson uh, 98 and 99 and 2000. And then I got chosen to be on the show because I, I would coach at Fa- Fairleigh Dickinson in between when I was playing professionally because, you know, our seasons were mostly uh, throughout the summer and the early fall. And I just hop in and start coaching when I got done playing. And so this season, I just, I filmed Survivor. No one knew. They couldn't tell anyone. And I got back. I'm all skinny. I got a big beard. And then I show up for preseason. And everyone's like, okay, this is a little weird, but I didn't say anything, nothing. It was the best. Wow. And then it premiered and everyone's like, Holy crap, you're on the show. And then it was funny because I, I obviously knew how well I did. I knew I made it to the final two. No one else knew. So I said, listen, if you guys keep winning, I'll keep winning. And so that year in 2002, no, two thousand and one was the the best
0: year FDA FDU ever had. We made it to the elite eight. <laughs> what? well wow, you you were the driving force for that as well. I don't <laughs> Coach- even
1: filmed, so I knew what was going to happen. But I maybe it inspired them. Maybe it didn't. I have no idea. Did you share that with Coach? Did Coach know what the what was going on? No. I mean, no. No one knew. I couldn't. I didn't even tell my mom or my brothers. You Is know that right? Yeah, because you got you signed a contract that's like you know five inches thick. They're like, if you tell anyone you five million dollar lawsuit or whatever they're saying back in the day. This has been the ultimate adventure for me. Every little bit of myself, my being has been touched in some little way. It was a day I will never ever forget.
0: So you've had personal tragedy in your family, and now you find out eventually that you have cancer. It was on April 30th of 2009, you were diagnosed with a rare type of cancer, Hodgkin's lymphoma, cd 20 positive Hodgkin's lymphoma. The first time you found out, I would imagine you thought of your father, right? Yeah. Yeah. You nailed that. It was, you know, my only connection to cancer growing up was through my dad.
1: So to me, cancer equals death. So when I got diagnosed at age 35, yeah, I mean, totally sideswiped. You know, I was, I was fit, young, healthy. I was training for the New York city marathon, um, at that time. And I had some really like itchy skin and I didn't know what was going on inside my body, went to every doctor, nurse, whatever. I tried every pill, cream, potion, no one figured it out. And finally a swollen node popped out of my neck and they found a six centimeter by 12 centimeter mass in my chest. Like I said, I was diagnosed with this rare form of blood cancer called CD20 positive Hodgkin's lymphoma. (laughs) Um, I had never heard of it either. So don't worry if you have no idea what that was. Um, But yeah, and then I went through, you know, multiple rounds of chemotherapy, 22 blasts of radiation. I had an autologous stem cell transplant, um, which was good. I mean, it got the disease into remission for a while. Then the cancer came back just, you know, 20 months later. So, uh, getting the news that the cancer returned was deflating. It was, I mean, exponentially more difficult than the first time around, you know? And, uh, this is like, you run out of options. You have the maximum dose of chemotherapy, radiation, already had a transplant. So like, this is when things got nuts and scary. And, uh, you know, lucky for me at that exact moment in time, just when I needed the most, this new smart targeted therapy emerged on the market was available for a select group of people in my exact situation. And that got the disease into remission again so I could go on to get my second stem cell transplant, this time using my brother, Lee, as the donor. So uh, I'm very happy to say I've now been in remission for about nine years, and uh, I'm no longer my mom's favorite son (laughs) because my brother took
0: that role after he donated his stem cells to save my life. (laughs) Yeah, isn't that amazing? With your fabulous career of giving... Your brother gave the ultimate. He gave a part of him to you. I mean, this is such an amazing story. How close are you to Lee? Very close.
1: Yeah. I mean, now we even share I even changed my name. My name is now Lethan. I'm no longer Ethan anymore. Just Lethan <laughs> <laughs> because, because I'm part Lee, part Ethan. Yeah, he literally my DNA is his DNA. Um, it's an absolute incredible te- cancer research, science, technology is mind blowing. Um, I am a science experiment. It's like, uh, you know, let's remove all the blood and stem cells and platelets and red blood cells and white blood cells from this dude. And let's replace it from stuff from this dude and see what happens. Like that's exact. It's like a science fiction. all. Like literally what they did. Um, and so, you know, you're locked in a hypersterial bubble for a month at a time when you get these transplants. So, you know, living in that type of lifestyle and then a socially and physically isolated lifestyle post transplant for a hundred days. Um, and then years of a socially isolated lifestyle, that was my life for six years. And so when the pandemic hit, I was like, Oh, we can back to this again. This is no problem. Let's do it. (laughs) I'm joking because I know it's difficult for a lot of people, but I had been through the exact same thing. You know, that's exactly what it's like to go through a stem cell transplant and then try to emerge into the world and, and, figure out mask, gloves, no public transportation, no crowds, no public restaurants, none of that stuff.
0: Tell us a little bit more about Lee, because obviously (laughs) he has to be a very special brother. And, uh, you know, you get all the accolades. You don't hear so much about Lee except for what he gave to you. Give us a little bit more about him. Sure. I mean, Lee's the middle brother. I got two older brothers. Leonard's the oldest. Lee's the
1: middle. I'm the youngest, the baby. Um, and uh, Lee was also a soccer player. He played goalkeeper. I was a goalkeeper. So basically, when I was younger, my two brothers would just stick me in the backyard and blast balls in my face. And I'd just be like, ah! So then I became a goalkeeper. <laughs> Simple uh, solution. And uh, yeah, he's, Lee you know, went to uh, grew up in Lexington, went to Clark University, and then he went on to become a chiropractor. And so now Lee is a chiropractor here in the Massachusetts area. Um, And uh, it's
0: uh, wonderful to have him on my side. He Gave me the gift of life. Someone else who's been by your side is your wife. And you had a very public televised romance for many years. And then that necessarily didn't work out to, to the ultimate marriage. But then you found somebody as your life partner. Tell us about your wife. Just a note to anyone listening. Don't go on. The show The Amazing
1: Race with your girlfriend because she won't be your girlfriend after. (laughs) My relationship imploded on national TV. No, it wasn't that bad, but um, The Amazing Race did, you know, test our relationship a little bit and it didn't work out, but we're still friends and she's great. But now I met this wonderful, incredible woman named Lisa Haywood, now Lisa Zahn, and uh, she was an interior designer in New York City. And uh, we met at a charity event for the Clinton Global Initiative. And we both weren't supposed to be there. We both got last minute tickets. And uh, when everyone sat down to play poker, there's literally like two people standing up because we didn't have a
0: seat. And we're like, you're kind of cute. You're kind of hot. Let's meet." <laughs> and then uh, the rest is history. That's fantastic. When it comes to this, she sees what you do as far as how you have been giving back. Obviously, she bought into that whole side of Ethan Zahn, right? She's got to be that same mindset of of helping others or you just wouldn't click. Correct. Yeah, Um,
1: definitely. She is a very selfless and compassionate, empathetic human being and a great chef. Um, but uh, the, the, it's funny you say that she knew what she was getting into because so we got married in 2016. And rather than taking a traditional honeymoon, we wanted to do a charitable honeymoon. And, uh, you know, we had so much love and luxury and extravagance thrown our way during our wedding, we just kind of wanted to give back. So we took a charitable honeymoon to Greece. And we volunteered in a, a Syrian refugee camp called Basilica, um, which was outside an area called Thessaloniki, Greece, and so when we were there, I mean, I'm sure you've heard or read stories about what these refugee camps are like, but it was horrible. I mean, mm-hmm. it was an upscale concentration camp, as far as I was concerned, and so we had one. Day, we were volunteering at a school um, that was about quarter of a mile away from the actual camp. So the kids were allowed to go back and forth to the school. And so we bought books and soccer gear and we were doing stuff over there. But one day we got to go visit the, uh, the actual camp and we weren't allowed to go visit the camp because they didn't want Americans in there. And they're afraid we we're gonna film it and send this information back to the United States which is kind of true. Um, So we snuck in through the back fence. This little girl took us in and her mom was sick because they couldn't get medicine. So we were literally just trying to bring her aspirin or Tylenol or something. Mm. So we get in there, it's pouring down rain, we get in there, cops find out we're in there. They start hunting for us inside the refugee camp. We go into a tent. My wife's like rocking in the corner under a blanket. We're hiding our shoes underneath. So I didn't know where we are. Like our hearts beating like crazy because we didn't want to be arrested in a foreign country on our honeymoon. And so uh, finally the, the cops take off and we sneak out the back fence. And as we're walking out, my wife looks at me. She's like, I could be on a beach right now, but instead I marry you. And I'm like, sorry, honey, but uh, we'll redo it in a little while. We'll, re- we'll redo it. <laughs> so it wasn't the most romantic honeymoon in the world, but we
0: became a lot closer after that. You know, Most people don't forget their honeymoons, but your wife will never forget never. your honeymoon. So that's, that's something that of... you, you can always <laughs> yeah, talk <laughs> about, right? And she can always hold that over your head. Remember, remember what I did for you on our honeymoon.
1: Definitely. Um, The fun part about that is we uh, did a flash fundraiser while we were over there. So we raised, uh, I think it was $64,000 in 24 hours. And then we literally took that money out of the bank. And we went and bought, like I said, books, um, soccer gear and goals, coffee, tea, sugar, uh, milk for all these. And uh, so you'd be literally hats, gloves, because it's getting cold with jackets during winter. And so we just spent the 64 grand and delivered it right to the camp that day or the next day.
0: Must be such an adrenaline rush to provide such help throughout the world. It Even- is you
1: know, if people don't understand. It's that, I mean they might understand. Listen, I'm not any better or different than anyone else, but I know that like focusing on the challenges and the plight of other human beings helps you heal as a human being. You know, it's that easy. And so, like you know, in this crazy world we're, that we're living in, I just always feel that I go back to like never let a crisis go to waste. Right, it's an opportunity. Um, and so to do nothing is also to act, right? So if you see things going on in the world and you're making the choice to do nothing about it, you're doing nothing about it. Like take action, you know, be inspired, do something, you know, figure out what makes your heart break and do something about it or join an organization that's doing something about it. Um, and so I'm, I'm always trying to inspire people to
0: kind of look into the big picture and get involved with something much bigger than themselves. You've had your own TV shows. You've been a media personality for quite some time. Most of your adult life has been in the public eye and you went public with your cancer battle, especially adopting cannabis and CBD as a form of care. What do you want to say about that?
1: Well, I uh, I do feel that uh, I'm in a really unique position because like for my, most of my adult life, I've been, on, I've been on the giving end of charity, community support, philanthropy, and then when I got diagnosed with cancer, the world flipped, and all of a sudden I was on the receiving end of charity, philanthropy, and community support. So, like I've seen this world from both sides, and so I have, I can, I feel I can work better now with these kids that we're doing in Africa. Like I don't know what it's like to have HIV. I'll never know what it's like, but I do know what it's like to walk into a doctor's office and sit down and hear get a diagnosis that's uh, life threatening and has a fifty percent cure rate. Like I know what that's like. So I think it's enabled this whole you know crisis in my life, has enabled me to do my job better, and that falls into kind of where you're leading with uh, cannabis and plant-based wellness you know when I was sick you know I was taking a lot of synthetics um, all prescribed and as they do but you know I was taking five six seven pills just to get to bed at night and then uh, I'd be taking more pills in the morning to get enough energy to go back to the doctor so I was just I was tired of this cyclical synthetic lifestyle I was living so someone turned me on to cannabis um, and as a you know, my whole life, you know, I'm obviously I went to a nice liberal arts college in upstate New York. I'm familiar with it. My friends have used it. I didn't at the time. I was a soccer guy. I didn't want to touch it. It was like, you know, I think I, I smoked pot once second semester of my senior year. The season was over. I'm about to graduate. I'm like, I'm going to go crazy. And I smoked pot, right? Um, and so, but it was just never part of my lifestyle. However, when I got sick, very open to it, looking for different ways to, you know, mitigate the side effects of cancer treatments. And it did work really well for me. And then post-cancer, um, I'm more into, you know, like my lifestyle. I'm a pretty, you know, high energy guy, a little bit neurotic, you know, I'm Jewish. I've got some anxiety inside me. And so surviving cancer as a young adult and having your whole life in front of you, that for me is difficult. You know, going through cancer is easy. When a doctor tells you to do something, you die, you do it. There's no choice there. But after cancer, that's when the fan for me and life got a little bit more difficult. And so CBD and cannabis uh, became part of my routine to help, you know, deal with the anxiety and stress of relapse and the fear that the cancer may come back. And um, so, yeah, so I got involved with a cool company called Mont Cush. I'm uh, an investor. I'm the chief purpose officer. We're 116 acre organic hemp farm in Plainfield, Vermont filmed the whole process from start to finish for a cool reality show on vice called Kings of Cush can stream it now. And so, It gets back to the details of my life can help other people, educating folks out there about the benefits of plant-based wellness, creating a TV show around it to help educate people more, um, and erase the stigma associated with using, uh, you know, CBD and cannabis to help um, some of your illnesses and ailments.
0: There's still lots of questions about, you know, legislation and laws that are going on around the country. Do you have any suggestions from your position that what states should do as far as legalizing medical marijuana and then, you know, the, the whole industry itself?
1: Well, obviously I'm an advocate for, um, you know, the legalization of cannabis nationwide. I completely understand all the concerns about it. Um, and I'm not going to claim that I know everything about everything within the business. However, it just seems like, um, financially it's a good decision for a lot of these states it seems the states that have legalized it medically and uh, adult use are doing well you know and i like how at the start of this new industry it's mandated by law that a portion of the proceeds for whatever you're doing whether you're growing a your dispensary whatever that may be in that particular state a portion of the, your proceeds have to go back to the community um and that's a wonderful rule that they instilled so because of that um one of the co-founders of Grassroots Soccer and myself, we launched a new organization called Safe Roots Foundation, and that's, uh, we are a new wave in teenage drug misuse prevention because we feel cannabis, CBD is good for public health, but we also feel if more kids start using it, it's bad. It's bad for the industry. So we want to make sure that the industry plays a role in making sure more kids don't use. So we created this organization um, where we have, using everything we learned from Grassroots Soccer and Adolescent Health, and now we're applying that through um, you know, it's, it's apply that into the cannabis world. So what we do is we raise money from within the cannabis industry, the legal cannabis industry, and then we distribute that to the best evidence-based teenage drug prevention programs around the country. And so it's like alcohol, drunk driving, tobacco, anti-smoking, apple, anti-screen time, same thing. Cannabis has a role to play to make sure more kids don't use weed. Um, and so that's kind of uh, a next, my next big endeavor.
0: What a concept to use celebrity and athletic and knowledge to help others not all athletes do that but a lot do a lot give back to their community and we're very thankful for that we wish some of the really multi-zillionaires in the business would would do that as well but you're showing that it works you're showing that it, it can happen because people can say oh He's got another show. Ethan's got another foundation organization. Yeah, but it all ties back to helping others. That's what's impressive about Ethan's Zahn and his wife Lisa. What do you guys, uh, you know, you get you get a weekend free knowing where you went for your honeymoon. I'm almost afraid to ask this, but wh- where you, travel is, you know, cost is not an issue, where are the two of you going to spend a quiet weekend away? Be honest we're staying home. You know, we uh,
1: lived in New York City for a really long time. And uh, my wife looked at me one day, she's like, you know, I've never grown my own tomatoes. Let's grow our own tomatoes. We're like, all right, that sounds interesting. So we left New York City, we moved to the middle of the woods in New Hampshire. And we grew our own tomatoes, we drilled a well, we heat our house with wood, we live on a lake. Um, we have Blueberry bushes. I chop wood and I stack wood. I love it. Um, and so, if we have a weekend to do nothing, we're going to do nothing at our house because it's just the best, the best place in the world.
0: <laughs> that makes perfect sense. Give us one moment in soccer that you remember the most, either whether it be playing on the professional ranks or in college. That you know, when you think about your ability as a goalkeeper, what what stands out to you? I know exactly what stands out to me. It was um,
1: in Zimbabwe. I had finally made the reserve team, not even the first team. So I made the reserve team um, and I got got some playing time. And uh, so I was in Barber Fields, 50,000 seat stadium. And a lot of the fans come to watch the reserve game because the, the first team game is right after the reserve game. So I'm going to go pouring down rain a big floppy curly Afro. And, uh, you know, I'm different. I, I'm white. I'm Jewish. I speak a different language. I eat different foods. I'm from a different country. I'm like an alien to these guys, and so here I am playing a goal. I make a save. I distribute the ball, and they start cheering for me. They're like they're yelling these words. I don't. I don't speak end of belly or Shona. So I don't know what they're saying. But I'm like, oh my god, Captain America, or like, Go USA. Well, I don't know what they're saying. So I'm so psyched. I'm on high of life. I'm like, this is great. I'm in. I'm part of the community. This team loves me. The fans love me. I run over to the sidelines. I tell them like Did you Did you hear Did you get they cheering for me. You hear what they're cheering for me. Just awkward silence. And they all looked at me. They started laughing. And they said, they are cheering pubic hair, pubic hair, pubic hair.
0: You are kidding. <laughs> yeah. And so yeah.
1: that was my entry into the professional
0: ranks in uh, Zimbabwe. <laughs> wow.
1: I'm the pubic hair guy. <laughs>
0: That didn't stop you from helping the people of Zimbabwe, though, did it? <laughs> no, no, I felt uh, I felt
1: connected at that moment uh, to them. <laughs>
0: You've been on many different Survivor specials. Uh, are you going to try that ever again? I mean, you obviously have kept yourself in tremendous shape. I mean, so I played, played Survivor
1: Africa, which was season three, Survivor All-Stars, which is season eight. And then I just came back in 2019 to play Survivor season 40, Winners of War, where they invited 20 of the most popular winners of all time to compete for not one, but $2 million.
0: So I did that. And do so
1: well. <laughs> Just put it that way. Sixteenth place winner.
0: <laughs> well, you, you can't win every time. You, you know, others no. need. To, you got to share the wealth there a little bit.
1: <laughs> I mean, Survivor's great because you know there's going to be 19 losers and one winner
0: every season. So your odds of winning are pretty slim. Wouldn't it be something if there's a youngster who came out of grassroots soccer camps to become a professional soccer? player
1: it's happened oh yeah 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 a lot a lot you know we have a steady stream of african soccer players that have come to either play high school college or professional here in the united states it's not what we do it's not our core competency but if we see a kid who is incredible or is playing on a local club team in Africa and going through grassroots soccer. And we feel he has what it takes to make it in the U S or, or has the academic acumen to
0: study here in the U S we will make those connections and make it happen. Wow. Yeah. Your story is an amazing one and it keeps on going. That's what's great. It's, it's, <laughs> it's far from over and uh, you and Lisa are going to have more uh, encounters that I would imagine she will either, uh, bug you about or, or love you even more for it. Right. Bug me or love me. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> is there anything else you'd like to pass along? I know you have the gala coming up you talked about. Uh, anything else that you want to tell us that uh, we haven't talked about this afternoon? Our annual World AIDS Day Gala
1: is coming up on November 30th. We have an incredible cast of people coming. Seth Meyers, Sir Alex Ferguson, the legendary Manchester United coach. We have Roger Bennett, New York Times bestselling author and co-host of Men in Blazers. We have Kristen Press, who's the U.S. Women's National Team striker. Dr. Fumzili, who is the Deputy President of South Africa and President of the UN Women Foundation. And so we just have an incredible night full of food and music and fun and soccer. And it's just gonna be a fantastic night. So we're gonna be streaming the whole thing live. If anyone wants to take a look at it, we still have tickets available if you want to, you know, come. Uh, I know it's a couple days away, but uh, if you can make it, great. If you can't,
0: check us out online. So we've learned a lot on this edition of Sports Jam. We've learned that You can really, one person can make a huge difference in this world. We've also learned, be careful if you hear cheering at a (laughs) soccer game. Make sure you understand what they're saying before you get overly excited. Ethan's on. what a pleasure to have you on Sports Jam Continued Success. Thank you so much. Sports Jam is a WBGO Studios podcast. You can check out all the past shows by going to wbgo.org slash or find sports jam with Doug Doyle on the NPR list of podcasts or on iTunes or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Special thanks going out to Joe Favorito for hooking us up with the incredible Ethan Zahn. Until our next sports jam session, I'll see you at the game. Check out all the other WBGO Studio podcasts, like this one.
1: Hi, this is Nate Chenin.
0: And I'm Greg Bryant. We're the host of Jazz United, a podcast from WBGO Studios.
1: Join us for Season 2 of Jazz United, wherever you get your podcasts, or at wbgo.org.